I'll be reading from John um, chapter 17, 6 through 26, where Jesus is praying. I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and I myself may be in them. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. With this congregation, you can't get by with much. Last week, I mentioned a basketball player that I said uh, came from Oklahoma State University. On the way out, somebody stopped me and said, it wasn't Oklahoma State, it was Oklahoma, because I checked it on my phone. This morning... I preached in the first service. I started with the illustration I'm about ready to start with now. And I said it was somewhere in the early 90s. And a person caught me outside the door and said it was October 7th, 1995. I checked it on my phone. So it was October 7th, 1995. If they're wrong, I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, they're wrong. No matter. The story goes like this. October 7th, 1995, according to this person. In New York City, uh, the Pope, John Paul, visited and held an enormous mass. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people gathered. I watched it on uh, our television in New Haven, Connecticut. 
And as I watched it, it was um, spectacular. It was amazing. Uh, The Pope had given uh, his talk, and the people were amazed by his presence. As much as anything else, he was a remarkable man, knew, I think, seven languages uh, and spoke in most of them fluently. I listened to him, as a matter of fact, address at least five different people groups at the Vatican one time in the square, pointing to the crowd and saying their names, and you're from Spain, and he would greet them in Spanish. From Ghana and Africa, he'd greet them. It, it was amazing. But on that occasion, the Pope was speaking to the crowd, and when he finished, um, the, the worship service, shall we call it, was about to end, and the Pope did something interesting. He turned and, as though he was going to leave the stage permanently, walked this way. And as he did, he walked up and he tapped the conductor on the shoulder and he said something to him. And the conductor went, yeah, yeah, okay. And he turns around and he goes like this, makes a motion, says something to the choir and the orchestra, raises his hands and brings up with incredible beauty, the hallelujah chorus. The Pope thought that's just the way it's got to end. And the people were just amazed. It, it, was, it was a glorious moment, it really was. And I wasn't there, I was just watching it on TV. But as he did that, and as the ceremony or the worship service concluded, I had an overwhelming sense. This is going to throw some of you that I wanted the Pope to pray for me. It was 1995. I was at the beginning of pastoral ministry. I'd been studying theology into long hours of the night and probably was spiritually exhausted. And I wanted the Pope to pray for me. I told my wife that that day. Now, look, I'm not Catholic. I don't believe in the infallibility of the Pope. I have real issues with the doctrine of Mary. When I think of canon law, it doesn't bring pleasant thoughts to my mind. I really don't think you ought to pray to the saints. And I'm very partial to this thing called justification by grace through faith. It's a Protestant doctrine from the Reformation. All of that is true. And still, I wanted the Pope to pray for me. Why? Because of a deep inter-intuition that is in your hearts and in mine that we long for somebody to pray for us. I think, unbeknownst to me in that moment, for whatever mysterious reason, I was reflecting John 17, where Jesus, the high priest, the eternal high priest, prays for his followers. By the way, for those of you who might expect that I'm going to give you an apology for feeling that way, I'm not. On another occasion, 
I may feel that way again. Jesus, in this passage, stands in as the great eternal high priest and prays for his followers. And what does he say? Here's what he says. Holy Father, I want you to protect them. I want you to surround them with your grace, almighty God. I want you to keep them from harm. Now, you might say, well, he was praying for their physical protection, and perhaps he was. While he was with them, no harm came to them. As a matter of fact, he might have found his own untimely death had it not been for the plan of the Father not to allow him to go to death until the cross. So it's possible that at some level he says protect them. But let me remind you, it can't be just that. Because all of them but John were martyred. So Jesus' prayer couldn't have been just about physical protection. But we get a clue in the text that that's not what it's all about, don't we? He already has told them in chapter 14 and 15, you're going to suffer persecution if you follow me. They persecuted me, so they're going to persecute you. Implication, you're going to get beat up. On occasion, as you know, they died. Jesus is primarily saying... In the midst of this world, I don't want you to take them out of the persecution and the imminent death, though he didn't mention that. I want you, Holy Father, to protect their soul. I want you to make sure, Father, I'm pleading before the throne of your grace that you don't let any of them slip through the cracks of hanging on to you by faith. I pray that they will be protected. Or to put it in the words of Jesus when he spoke to Peter right before Peter denied him. Peter, you're about to deny me. And Peter said, are you kidding me? I couldn't possibly do that. I love you too much. I'm too courageous. I'm too on and on and on, right? The kind of things that Peter would have said. And Jesus said, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. There's a real enemy of your soul called Satan. He wants to damn you. But I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. He didn't say, Peter, I prayed for you and I know because I prayed for you, you'll never sin again. He knew he was about to deny Jesus. He said, I pray for you that your faith won't fail. That when you sin, when you fall on your face, when you're absolutely down at your lowest point, you will not give up your faith in me. And then I'm going to restore you, Peter, so that you can teach others. That's a theme that's in the New Testament a lot, by the way. Jesus prays for us as he did for his disciples. In 1 John, it says that if any of you sin, or you might even translate it when you sin, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who intercedes on your behalf. The writer of the book of Hebrews considering the backdrop of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament priest praying on behalf of the people said, you have an eternal high priest who's ever interceding on behalf of you because he sealed the deal, it's over. Jesus says, Lord, I want you to protect them. Second, he says, Holy Father, I want you to sanctify them. Holy Father, in other words, I want you to help them to live differently in the world. I want you, by the spirit of truth, to help them to think differently about their world. 
Holy Father, I want you to sanctify them in this world. And as they think differently and live differently, they're going to face persecution. And through that persecution and through the truth that they live by, I want you to shape them and sanctify them. Um, do you ever just feel weird? I mean, really. The way you think and the way you live. In the company of people who are entirely different than you, you just think differently about the world. You live differently than everybody else does. It's part of your sanctification. Jesus said, I want the spirit of truth to transform them. I want you to sanctify them through the process of thinking and living differently because thinking and living differently can be a real problem. It can create strife and even persecution. Holy Father, sanctify them. Your word is truth. Holy Father, I want you to unify them. I don't think Jesus is suggesting, though I can't know for sure, that he would have been against various denominations. I don't think that's really what's going on here. Some people would suggest it is. I think Jesus is basically saying, Lord, I want you to not make them identical, but make them unified around the things of greatest importance. I want you to unify them around the truth. Your word is truth. Doctrine. Can I use that bad word? I want them to really believe what is true and not what is not true. So much of the epistles of Paul relate to getting the doctrine concerning Jesus correct so that you can live according to that doctrine. I I want you, can I insert, Jesus says, in effect, of course I'm extrapolating, I want you to help them understand what it really means for me to be son of God. I want you to unify them around that deep belief of what it means to be son of God. Because there's going to be a lot of issues in this world and a lot of viewpoints concerning son of God. But I want them to understand deeply what son of God means and to be united around that so they can be one. So they can be one with me and I with you and them with all of us together. I want them to unite in the truth and I want them to unite in the advancement of the kingdom of God for things that are important in this world for living out the kingdom message. I also, I think Jesus is saying, I want you to unify them. I want them to be united in every way in spite of economic disparity that is between them. Think of the epistle of James. In the epistle of James, James says to those who are following Christ, let me ask you a question. When a rich person comes into your congregation, do you give him the seat up front? Do you look at him because he's got fine clothes and then begin to heap praise on him? Do you give him special attention because he's a cut above the average economically? If you do, shame on you. What about the poor person at the back? So Jesus, I think, when he speaks of unity, is speaking of being united across all those lines. 
that the church of Jesus Christ would be united no matter what the social economic barriers might be in a culture that we live in. Unify them, Lord. Unify them, Lord, in other ways as well as to race. That they will be so one it will not matter whether they are from this race or another. They're one with me. Unify them, Lord, all over the world. This is something the disciples couldn't even conceived of yet. But it has happened. Notice what happened in this little report about missions with the connection students. Remember the expression of how I didn't understand a single word they were saying? But I felt like I was in the presence of God because they were. Because race and economics should not be a barrier. Because language should not be a barrier. No nation should be a barrier. Unify them, Lord. All those who call upon my name, put them together in tight unity to serve me. Finally, Jesus says, and and this doesn't seem to be so obvious in the text, but I believe it's there. Jesus says to the Father, I want you to glorify them. See, at the beginning of this text, in the first part of 17, he says, Father, I want you to glorify me. And part of the glory that he's talking about is the cross, the mission of the cross, which was not shameful to Jesus. It was his highest glory. I want you to glorify me, and I want you to bring me back to you so that we can be one. And then at the end, you hear the oneness theme coming back around again. And I think Jesus is actually saying, Lord, I want you to glorify yourself through them, through the united body of Christ. And then I want you to bring them to be with me as I am with you. I want you to round out the circle, God, Please do this for them. Well, if that's what Jesus says, what can we take away? Uh, First, let me make one suggestion. You take it away. Take chapter 17 of the Gospel of John and take it with you. Here's a suggestion. Read it all week. Every day. Read the prayer and say, what's there for me? See, I think too often people show up to church and they let me do the talking and the thinking, right? Take 17 with you. Think about it yourself. What other conclusion is there concerning this prayer? First, Jesus prayed. It's pretty obvious. You say, yeah, I'm stating the obvious. Jesus prayed. Jesus, the Son of God, prayed. Jesus, in some measure, needed prayer. Jesus devoted himself to prayer over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus prayed. So embrace prayer. You need it if Jesus needed it. You need it more than Jesus needed it. And you need to embrace the mystery of prayer. You might say to yourself, if you're thinking about this text, you may say, why is Jesus praying to God when Jesus is God? How is it that Jesus could say? Yeah, that's a good question. Stuff it. I say that charitably, stuff it. Just pray. Well, if I pray, am I changing God? Is he changing? Forget it. Pray. Well, how does the sovereignty of God and the free will of man factor into my prayer? Don't worry about it. Just pray. Just pray. 
Jesus did it. Just pray. Second, Jesus prays for others. So should you. Oh, can I go back to the Pope? I know that made some of you uncomfortable. Let's go back there. The Bible actually says that you're all priests before God. The Bible says you've got a responsibility to lift others up in prayer. To pray for others the way I wanted the Pope to pray for me. You say, you're like neo-Catholic there, Bob. You're over on the edge. No, not really. Because you're just like me. You might not have thought about the Pope. But when you got your back to the wall, what do you want? The prayers of one of the saints. Who do you think of? The one you feel that's closest to God. That great-grandmother... That father, that friend, that pastor, please pray for me. Pray for one another. Jesus prayed for us. Third, I think this is wonderful. Take courage. Jesus is praying for you. Can you believe that? I mean, don't you spend most of your day trying to slug it through yourself? Don't you think it is all up to you? Well, first of all, you know it's not. But second of all, you can't help but think it is. Third, Jesus is with you. He demonstrated it by praying for His disciples who were present with them. And then, just try it. Just try it one time. I told you to take John 17. Just insert your name in there. Jesus was praying for you. Take courage. Tomorrow, the next day, when you don't think you can do it again, you can't move on. Your faith wanes. Jesus is praying for you. Don't forget it. Finally, I love this. Take heart. You're on the right side. It's called God's side. And Jesus has conquered sin and death. And the battle is already over. It might seem like a struggle, but it's just a day compared to eternity. God has already signed the last part of the last chapter. All you have to do is follow Jesus because the battle is over and he's praying for you. Let's pray together, shall we? Gracious Lord, we thank you for your great gift that comes to us in Jesus Christ, um, your example and your words and your prayers. We thank you that before we knew you, you prayed for us. We thank you that you have given us a commission to do likewise, to pray for one another. So as we go forward this week, Lord, give us courage because we know you're praying for us. Give us the will to pray for others because we know we should emulate you. And remind us, Lord, that the battle really is over. 
It's already been won. All we need to do is walk with you while you pray for us. And we'll thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.